This is the Ransom Dart Podcast, and we are in part three of our series titled Love and War. Now, if you have not heard part one and two yet, I highly recommend you start there. In this third session today, we're going to be looking at the role the enemy tries to have in our marriage. We'll talk about the agreements that we make, oftentimes not even aware of them, and most importantly, how to fight for each other. I'm Alan Arnold. I hope you enjoy this. It's from the audiobook Love and War, and John and Stacy are both reading chapter six, titled How to Have a Really Good Fight. The most dangerous food is wedding cake. James Thurber. Stacy is really bugging me this morning. I can't name it. I don't even know why. She's just bugging me, that's all. I'm irritated with her, or rather what it feels like is simply that she's irritating. And truth be told, she doesn't seem that happy to see me either. I don't get it. We just had a very romantic weekend together. The redemption of our 25th wedding anniversary went like this. First, we did end up having a party. Not the gala event of the elusive golden moment, but an intimate gathering at our home, which was even better. Champagne, a lovely cake, loving toasts, joy. It was beautiful. The next morning, we slipped away to Santa Fe for three days. There is a lot to tell from that adventure, but let me jump to the best moment. It is our second evening. We're going to a restaurant recommended by some friends and rated tops in a city known for great restaurants. Anticipation is high. That ancient yearning for Eden is stirring in our hearts this might be really good. Now, you recall the backstory. How four years ago, while playing a board game, Josh Groban's When You Say You Love Me comes on over the stereo, and Stacy stops playing to make the announcement, I want to dance to this at our 25th. In classic guy fashion, I totally forgot about it. I think something in me cringed at the thought of dancing a slow, romantic dance, gazing into each other's eyes as 50 of our family and friends surrounded us like voyeurs. So let's just say I didn't make a strong mental note of it. By the time our anniversary came around, it was totally gone. I'm sad to say I forgot all about the song. Anyhow, it's a little tense getting to the restaurant. One-way streets, I can't navigate my pickup truck into the tiny parking spots tension is mounting. The evening feels fragile. Joy feels fragile, like Cinderella's slipper. It feels like we are going to miss the ball. We come into the restaurant, and it is lovely. Linen tablecloths, crystal wine glasses, and a fire in the adobe fireplace. Really romantic. The aromas wafting from the kitchen are absolutely heavenly. The waiter brings our drinks and steps away for a moment. We both take a deep breath and let out a long sigh. We lift our wine glasses for a toast, and at this moment, we become aware of the music that is playing. Josh Groban is singing When You Say You Love Me. We smile. The evening becomes transcendent. We're lifted into the love story. It is altogether beautiful. Our waiter confides that he loves our books, and that was fun. We let him in on the celebration. The food is exquisite, and best of all, we are ourselves. The veil is lifted. 
the pressure of life held at bay. We are simply ourselves, and we really do enjoy each other. It is good to be reminded of that. As dinner lingers on, each course is better than the one before. I don't recall what they named our dessert, but it should have been called chocolate orgasm. At the close of the evening, I ask for the bill, and our waiter says that it has already been paid for by our friends. We are speechless and moved to tears. Later, we wander the romantic grounds of our hotel holding hands, and then we retire to our room and, well, let's just say it was a passionate finale. And now, I'm irritated. She's certain I'm disappointed, back to our old wounds, and everything we just enjoyed is slipping away. What the heck is going on? Why does it always seem that any movement toward love or romance or redemption, any step toward joy is just waiting to be tripped up? You have an enemy. Back to the drama in the Garden of Eden. Remember now, God gave us this story of the first marriage to help us get our bearings. It provides some very essential categories for navigating our marriages, like how gender is so fundamental to our identity and how we were made for paradise, how mankind fell, and what that fall did to our lives as men and women. And it also makes something else absolutely and utterly clear. We have an enemy. Now there's a thought. I mean, we all feel from time to time that we have an enemy. But who would we say that is? Our spouse, right? I mean, sometimes you just walk into the room and see them, and they feel like the enemy. One day out of three, a friend cynically said to me, but your spouse is not the enemy. There is another. We confessed earlier in this book our naive view of the story when we got married. We thought the plot was love God, love each other, and everything will work out. Our naivete nearly cost us our marriage. We learn the hard way. Do we ever really learn any other? That there is a whole lot more going on here. We had to face our brokenness. That was a shock. We had to confront our style of relating. That was humbling. We needed to learn that this is a far more dangerous story than we thought. That there is so much at stake. And maybe the biggest eye-opener of all, we learned we had an enemy. No one explained that to us in our early years, or if they did, we weren't paying attention. But this is a given in the scripture. Toward the end of his life, the seasoned old St. Peter pens a word of warning to the followers of Christ. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He assumes that every single one of us, quote, your brothers throughout the world, are under assault by a very real enemy whom he portrays as a ravenous lion stalking us just waiting for the first chance to devour. 
not merely tempt, devour. If you have seen the movie The Ghost and the Darkness, you have some idea. It was a sobering description. Peter's readers would have taken soberly, living as they did in lion country. It might help us moderns to think of Satan as a terrorist, cunning, dangerous, obsessed, looking to destroy whatever he can in your life with no regard to the rules of fair play. We hear it, but we don't seem to hear it. I'm thinking of the story of an affair. Leslie came to my office in tears. Her husband had left her. I should have seen it coming. I hold my tongue because she's sobbing, but we all saw it coming. Where was he going on all those trips? He didn't travel for work. Everyone knew that. Then folks started seeing him with this gal in town. Friends tried to intervene. We tried to help her see, but Leslie didn't see, didn't want to see. There was lipstick on his neck. He claimed it was the dental hygienist and that somehow it rubbed off when she was doing his teeth. I kid you not. And Leslie believed him. Can you believe it? When he finally walked out for good, most of us wanted to say, well, what did you expect? You ignored every warning in the book. But we are just as taken in. We don't live like our marriage has an enemy. We ignore the lipstick. Satan is respected in the Bible as a very active threat, but few people actually live like it. I mean, seriously, how many couples do you know who recognize what Satan is doing in their lives and actually pray against it on a daily basis, weekly, monthly? When it comes to the enemy, we are all Leslie. You have an enemy. Your marriage has an enemy. Believe it or not, this is very good news because the epiphany that follows is this. Your spouse is not the enemy. He is not the enemy. She is not the enemy. Really? Sometimes we have to say that to each other when things are getting heated, my friend Dan confessed. I have to tell her, I am not the enemy. You are not the enemy because it can sure feel that way. No, it sure can. For years, Stacy and I lived with this constant feeling of accusation in our marriage. She felt accused by me, and I felt accused by her. What a relief it was to discover that these feelings of accusation were not actually ours. They were coming from him who is called the accuser, Revelation 12.10. Dear friends, if this is not a category you think in, you will not understand your life and you will surely not understand what is happening in your marriage. If this is not an assumption you use to interpret daily thoughts, emotions, and events, you will be as bamboozled as dear Leslie. Press to choose our top three things that would most help your marriage. We would come down to this list. One, find life in God. Two, deal with your brokenness. And three, learn to shut down the spiritual attacks that come against your marriage. Practice this and nothing else, and you will be amazed at the freedom, love, and joy that will begin to flow.
the agreements we make. A friend was describing to us the battle on a typical morning in his house. It might be any married household. He is running late, and he is not in a frame of mind for conversation. But his wife has got a few things she needs to run by him. Honey, what do you think we ought to send the kids for Christmas? He tries a quick dodge. I don't know, sweetheart. Just send them what we did last year. He keeps moving towards the door, and as he grabs the car keys, he gives them an extra shake for effect. Jingle, jingle, gotta go. She ignores the movement and the keys. What about your mom? Maybe we ought to have her down for Thanksgiving. You know, she didn't come last year. Oh my God, he thinks. She's got a whole list. By now, the internal commentary running in his head has drowned his wife out. And would you call the plumbers? She's nagging me. I hate it when she does that. Okay, sweetie, gotta go. And with that, he jumps out the front door as if his house was on fire. At least, that is the relief he feels upon his escape. But the climax of the scene is yet to be played. As he pulls out of the driveway, he is irritated. He gives way to the irritation, allows himself to feel irritated, and it feels good in a sick sort of way, like picking a scab. I hate it when she does that. Now, what he doesn't realize is that he is being baited. There is another presence in the car, egging all this on, an external source of provocation. But it feels so linked to real events, what just happened in the kitchen, that he doesn't see it for what it is. She's always nagging me. She's such a nag. It feels so justified. He is making an agreement. It's always been like this. It will never change. Irritation becomes cynicism. Cynicism becomes resignation. He has taken the bait. The marriage has received a hairline crack. Something in the essential union of their love is, for the time being, darkened. This sort of thing happens all the time. Now, this might just peter out. It might not be a big deal. The day goes on. He runs into far bigger irritations at work. And by the time he gets home, it is water under the bridge. But those agreements linger like tiny cracks in the structure. They might go away over time, but more often than not, they become the beginnings of deeper fissures. Little cracks don't matter much in your sidewalk, but in other places they matter a great deal, like airplane wings, for instance, or the Hoover Dam, places that will come under immense pressure, like marriage. A neighbor confided in me one day that he believed he married the wrong woman. I realized it on my wedding day. Really? I said. How? It just came to me. I made a terrible mistake. I married the wrong person. I asked him if it ever occurred to him that it wasn't an epiphany from God, not even a moment of personal clarity, but a suggestion from the pit of hell. He looked at me with absolute incomprehension, like a frog looks at you. He had swallowed the bait, hook, line, and sinker, and it destroyed his marriage. They had about 15 years of shared disappointment, during which he had mostly checked out. After all, he had married the wrong woman. They divorced last year. 
deal with the devil. We want to be as clear as possible what we mean by an agreement. Satan is a liar, the father of lies, John 8, 44. So utterly convincing, he deceived a glorious man and woman to betray God, whom they walked with every day. I think we tend to dismiss Adam and Eve as the idiots who got us all into this mess in the first place. But they had not yet sinned. They had experienced no wounding. They were man and woman in their glory, and they were deceived. It ought to give us all a healthy respect for what the enemy is capable of. Even the best of us can be taken in. Now, what this father of lies does is put his spin on a situation. It typically comes as a thought or feeling. She doesn't really love you. He'll never change. She's always doing that. By the way, when the word always is part of the equation, you know you are well into an agreement. Think of Iago whispering his lies about Desdemona to Othello in Shakespeare's Othello. Think of Wormtongue spinning his web around Eowyn in Tolkien's The Two Towers. In every fairy tale, the enemy tries to pit the boy and girl against each other. What Satan is hoping to secure from us is an agreement, a very subtle but momentous shift in us where we believe the spin, we go with the feeling, and we accept as reality the deception he is presenting. It always feels so true. Just settle for what you've got. Don't risk being hurt again. Once we buy into the lie and make the agreement, we come under the spell and come under the influence of that interpretation of events. Then it pretty much plays itself out. It becomes self-fulfilling. These agreements begin to define the relationship. They certainly color the way we experience one another. It can be devastating to just let this stuff roll on unchecked and unchallenged. Look what happened to Adam and Eve. It breaks my heart, our friend Lori said, to realize that I've been a Christian for 30 years and only now am I understanding this category of the enemy, how he's trying to take me down. Well, better now than never. The first thing we want you to do is recognize what is happening as the enemy presents an agreement and give it no quarter. Fight it, resist it, and send it packing to the outer reaches of hell. Recognize what is at stake here. The kingdom teeters on the hundred small choices we make every day. Now, many of these agreements are already deeply rooted in our lives. Some of them are so historic and familiar, we barely even recognize them. So how do we acknowledge them? Well, this will be an absolute epiphany. Ask Jesus. Lord, what are the agreements I have been making about my marriage? What are the agreements that I have been making about love? What are the agreements I have been making about my spouse? To have Christ reveal those things to you will be absolutely mind-blowing. I was giving a lecture to a group of couples not long ago and brought them to this very exercise to ask God to reveal the agreements they had been making in their marriage. We took a moment to pray and listen to what God might want to reveal. I decided to give it a go myself, not really expecting to hear much because after all, we have a great marriage. I don't know if it was the Lord or just my own soul answering, but immediately the sentence came, it's too much work. I felt like I just bit down on a good bit of tinfoil right on top of a filling. 
I mean, the shudder went to my toes. Dear Lord, how long have I been making that agreement? It felt familiar. It put words to an inner condition that felt nearly as old as our marriage. Yet these agreements can linger under the surface for decades until something brings them up. You can find the weight of any matter, find its meaning in the larger story simply by asking yourself, what is the effect of embracing this thought? What would be lost? I ask myself, what's been the effect of making that agreement? I saw it, saw how I shift into autopilot, push the little internal button that says cruise control. I duck the major issues, hope for a cordial detente. I lose my desire for something more with Stacy. I surrender my marriage on one little suggestion. The effect is horrible. What are some of the agreements you recognize in your life? Let me suggest a few. It's just not going to get any better. Don't rock the boat. Settle for what you've got. It's not worth the effort. Don't give it one more try. Never let anyone hurt you again. I'm just not going to trust him or her anymore. You do your thing, and I'll do mine. I shouldn't have married him, or I shouldn't have married her. Or how about I'd be happier with someone else? Any of those sound familiar? Now, as Christ reveals agreements to you, what you need to do is break them. You must renounce them. Jesus, forgive me for giving place to this in my heart. I reject this agreement. I renounce it. I break agreement with, fill in the blank, what is it? I break this agreement and I ask for your light and I ask for your love to come into these very places. Shine your light here. Bring me back to what is true. Bring your love into this place, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you will begin to practice this, simply asking Christ what agreements you have made and then breaking those agreements, you will be amazed at the relief you will experience. It lets so much daylight in, like throwing the windows open and suddenly having sunshine and fresh air pour into the room. Picture Dorothy, the cowardly lion, the tin man, and the scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz. We're out of the woods, we're out of the dark, we're out of the night. A United Front Now, we wish the enemy's work ended with agreements, but you know it doesn't. That is just the first pass, the first swipe he takes at the two of you. This demented, lion-turned-psycho-killer seeks to devour, or, as Jesus warned, to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10. It is not a pretty picture. And haven't we all seen it happen more than once in the lives of people we love? Things can get a lot rougher than merely resisting agreements. Why is it that over the past two years, every time a dear friend of ours sets out to lend his assistance on a church trip overseas, simply to play what many would see as a background role, his wife comes down with a terrible infection in her colon, an infection the doctors still do not understand, cannot diagnose, and cannot help to relieve. Is that coincidence? Why is it that every time Mary tries to recover sexual intimacy with her husband, something they have surrendered over the years, she has nightmares about being assaulted? Why is it 
that every time Janet and Dave try to pray together, their boys get into a rip-roaring fight and somebody gets hurt. Why is it that when Stephen begins to make some headway at work, his wife Becky spirals into one of her depressions and remains in that dark place for some time? For that matter, why did we lose a huge chunk of this very chapter as we were writing this book? The file simply disappeared, irrecoverable. Coincidence? Stop for a moment right now and think about what is hard in your marriage. How have you been interpreting that? Have you blamed your spouse, yourself? Have you just accepted it with resignation? What about Satan? Have you considered his part in it? The more we seek to make our marriage what it was meant to be, and the more we seek to play our roles in the larger story of God, the more intense the opposition becomes. It is a fact of life, though the opposition continues to surprise and dismay the people of God who ought to know better. How do we handle this? First, maintain a united front. When Satan succeeded in deceiving Adam and Eve, the first thing that fractured was their relationship with God. They withdrew from God. The very next fracture was in their marriage. They withdrew from one another. Certainly, that was his intent all along, divide and conquer. It's the oldest trick in the book. Over the centuries, Satan has gotten the church to turn its guns against itself while he seizes the world by the back of the neck and drags it to hell. We must not let it happen. One of the great secrets of the kingdom of God is the power of united prayer. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Matthew 18, verse 19. This is all the more true if the two united are husband and wife. Remember, in the spiritual realm, you are seen as one. When husband and wife stand together, the demons shudder. Remember also that Adam and Eve were given authority over the earth and let them rule, Genesis 1.26. So the two of you exercise authority over your realm, your little kingdom that includes your marriage, your home, and your children, among many other things. In fact, God has raised you to a higher position of authority than Adam and Eve held. After Christ paid for the sins of mankind through his own blood, by which he also disarmed the claims of the enemy against us, he rose from the dead. God the Father then gave to him all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. Christ won back what Adam and Eve surrendered. And then God included you in the authority of Jesus Christ. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6. So when husband and wife stand together, they wield a great deal of power and authority. The enemy knows this better than we. And that is why whatever form his assault is taking, you will not feel like praying about it together. You will suddenly feel irritated at each other. You will bow in prayer And suddenly you'll notice that he breathes heavily through his nose and it will bug the living daylights out of you and completely take you out of the prayer time. Or one of you will simply want to talk about it, which is not the same as praying about it. Quite often this is a ruse of the enemy to prevent you from praying about it. It will feel hopeless. It will feel silly. Do it anyway. 
For if you will stand together in prayer, you will see results. You will have already won the first battle. You maintained a united front. Just last night, Stacy and I were trying to navigate some difficult times with one of our sons. It was a tough conversation for the three of us. I knew we were in a battle for his heart. But the entire time, I wanted to get mad at him, and also at Stacy. Later, in our bedroom, I wanted so badly to critique the way she handled the conversation. The enemy wanted me to take all my frustration with our son and turn it on Stacy. You will have probably experienced this too. The person you are mad at isn't there, so you let it fly on the person who is there. My anger would have hurt her and divided us. I knew I was being baited. I knew, though I did not feel so in the moment, that Stacy is my ally in this. I had to fight hard not to give way to the enemy and let him divide us. Now we understand that some of you are in marriages in which your spouse is not an ally at this time, neither God's ally nor yours. Let this scripture be a word of hope to you. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7, 12-14 This passage makes it clear that even when only one spouse is walking with God, it has a powerful effect upon the husband or the wife and upon their household, your prayers are still very effective. Fighting for each other. Ken and Macy went at it for an hour and a half in the bathroom. Not a fight, at least not what you'd think of as a fight, though without this understanding of the enemy, it sure would have been a fight. The background goes like this. Macy was sexually abused as a little girl. The enemy knows this, of course, just as he knows your story, knows where you are vulnerable, and he has piled upon those wounds loads of self-hatred and abandonment. For most of her life, she has had to fight agreements around self-hatred and fear of abandonment. Ken has struggled with an addiction to pornography, introduced to him on the playground at school when he was eight years old. It is a 30-year-old addiction which Macy is only partially aware of. Whenever Macy discovers on their home computer a website Ken forgot to hide, she is immediately slammed with self-hatred. This takes the form of self-rejection and thoughts such as, see, you are not enough for him. He doesn't find you attractive. And also abandonment in the form of, one day he'll leave you. He's already half gone now. This has caused her to pull away from Ken which the enemy then uses against him to lure him deeper into a world of fantasy sexual satisfaction, which of course brings shame and self-contempt on him, which in turn causes him to pull away from Macy. You see how diabolical it all is? How far back the destruction of their marriage began when they were both so young? But they love each other, and they want 
to fight through this to recover all they can. So, they are headed into a function of some sort, both of them getting dressed in the upstairs bathroom. Of course, Macy doesn't want to be seen by Ken as she gets dressed, which the enemy uses against him with feelings of rejection, which only raise all the disappointment about their sexual isolation. This is what he is feeling as he shaves and she dresses in the closet. She comes out and asks, how do I look? Now the whole thing is booby-trapped. He wants to say, how come you always hide from me? And she is feeling really vulnerable at this moment, simply asking him how she looks. One wrong move, and this blows up. But they are both learning that they have an enemy, and the enemy is not each other. So Ken pushes past what he is feeling and says, you look great. Would that were enough? But Macy is under loads of self-hatred and says, no, I don't. I look stupid. On most days, this would shut down the conversation, but Ken moves towards her. Sweetheart, that sounds like an agreement. It would take too long to record the next hour and 20 minutes, but here's what happened. Macy made the choice to stay present and not give way to the self-hatred long enough to let Ken pray for her. In the name of Jesus, I command this self-hatred to leave my wife and leave my home. That lifted the attack enough for Macy to break the agreement for herself. I renounce the place I have given self-hatred in my life. Every agreement I have ever given to it. As she prayed to break the agreements, she could feel the cloud lifting. But now she is feeling afraid that Ken will see her as a burden. He's always having to pray for me. That's the fear of abandonment trying to sabotage her rescue. Ken is getting hammered with feelings of irritation, the spirit of self-hatred turning against him to get him to stop fighting for her. She has got to stay present, and so does he. Only love can do this. They pray through several rounds of breaking agreements, and we bring the full work of Jesus Christ against the spirits of self-hatred and abandonment. When this stuff has had a long hold over a person, it usually takes a few rounds of prayer to get it to yield, but it does yield. Now is the really vulnerable moment. The attack is lifted. Macy is doing really well and feeling the intimacy that having her husband fight for her brings. She actually wants to make love to him, but she is not sure if he's even interested by now. She takes the huge risk of moving toward him. Thank you, sweetheart as she gives him a full-body embrace. The enemy tries one more angle. Ken is exhausted from the prayer, and he is getting hit with his own battles. You don't deserve to have sex with her because of the porn. He does the right thing. Hun, I'm getting hit right now. Can we pray for me? She asks, what about? If he were to say, oh, the whole porn thing, it could take her out because she has just tried to offer herself, and she thinks what he means is, I'm not interested. But what he says is, I'm just feeling a lot of shame right now. So together, they pray again, this time for Ken. And we bring the cross and blood of Jesus Christ against all shame. Finally, they are both tender and vulnerable, naked in a wonderful way. One last choice has to be made. She has to risk offering again now that he's in a better place and he has to let go that old thing in him of never be late to anything. 
they are already an hour late. He does, she does, and not only do they make love, but they take back some huge ground in their marriage, all from a booby-trapped conversation in the upstairs bathroom. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Fighting for one another when one of us is down has proven to be one of the most beautiful gifts Stacy and I have given to one another in our marriage. This can become as normal to a marriage as paying the bills and taking out the trash. Heroic Love The little matchbox of a house we lived in when we first got married had a problem with cockroaches. They would come out of nowhere every night. If you turn the kitchen light on, they would scurry under the stove or duck into the cupboards. If you forgot to turn the light on, you would crunch a few under your bare feet. After about a year of half-hearted attempts to get rid of them, I was finally fed up. It was time for a showdown. I bought bug bombs. I cleaned out behind the stove. I sprinkled powder in every cupboard. I finally dealt with those little buggers. And they left. The Israelites had to fight to get to the promised land, and they had to fight to get in. Once there, they had to fight to clear it of enemies and then fight to keep it so. David had to fight to secure his throne, and he too had to fight to keep it. God has long fought for the romance he desires with us, and he fights on even now. You need not be afraid of the fight. The battle can be won, and it will call forth wonderful things from you, things like courage and sacrifice, steadfastness and love. What you need to fix a steely eye gaze upon is that part of you that wants to bury your head in the sand, to call the fight something other than what it is, to lower the drawbridge and surrender the castle. There is a traitor within each of us, and it is the greatest threat to your marriage. The enemy wins, and you never even struck a blow. You can divide couples into two categories, and having done so, predict their future with some certainty those couples who enjoy sex and those who don't, those couples who are dealing with their brokenness and those who are ignoring it. But the most telling division is this, those couples who understand we are at war and are allied against the enemy and those who refuse, for whatever reason, to face the fact. I'll put my money on the warriors every time. Why do certain subjects always result in arguments for the two of you? Why is it that when you bring up the topic of money or sex, his mother, her mother, your brother, how much time you spend at work, your weight, where you will spend the holidays, it all blows up in your face. It feels booby-trapped. Yes, exactly, it is. You have just stumbled into the enemy's camp. You have just uncovered where he is working. Now, what will you do? There comes a time when you must turn and face it. Okay, this is real. We live in a love story set in a great war. The enemy is having a field day with me, my thoughts, my emotions, or the enemy is having a field day with our marriage. It is coming after our kids. It is wrecking family vacations or our friendships or relationships. We are going to deal with it. And dealing with it means you pray 
directly against it. You pray against it. This would probably be a pretty good barometer. If you don't do this once a week, you are probably being naive. Satan and his minions don't take days off. They don't have holidays. Actually, it will prove to be one of the most encouraging things for your prayer life because spiritual attack responds to prayer more quickly than just about anything else. Not super easy, not every time, but more noticeably than anything else. You will both be so encouraged. How do you learn to do this? If you are just starting out, we recommend you pray together the daily prayer that we've included in the appendix of this book. 30 days of that, and you will be amazed at how much fog clears. We also recommend that you both read Victory Over the Darkness and The Bondage Breaker by Neil Anderson. Listen to a series called The Four Streams, available through our ministry, Ransomed Heart, at ransomedheart.com. These will get you going. We live in a love story set in a great and terrible war. If we will confront our battles for what they really are against our true enemy, we can find our way back to the love story. It may take time and repeated bouts. Of course, the war itself on earth will not cease until the white rider returns. Meanwhile, our hearts are created for heroic love, and you will never feel more alive than when you are loving heroically. That was John and Stacey Eldridge reading from chapter six of their book, Love and War. Now, I'd like to leave you with a couple of questions for you to go through with your spouse or maybe just journal and have it be between you and God. The first question is, think about what is hard in your marriage. How have you been interpreting that? Have you blamed your spouse, yourself? Have you just accepted it with resignation? And what about Satan? Have you considered his part in it? The second question is, are you aware of how easy it is to do anything but actually face your enemy? Where are you not dealing directly with his attacks in your marriage these days? Where are you dodging and trying to either ignore it or blame some other source? Now, if you're getting a lot out of these questions that I'm asking at the end of each session, you can find those and more in the Love and War Participants Guide. It's available along with the book and the book on audio and the video curriculum at ransomedheart.com. I'm Alan Arnold, and I hope you'll join us next week for part four in our series, Love and War.